Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise In the policy world, we pay a lot of attention to inequalities and gaps between demographic groups. But one group tends to get left out of these analyses, men. Indeed, the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, which calculates a gender equality score for each country, doesn't even treat disparities for which men perform worse than women as disparities. This would be one thing if men were doing all right, but as today's guest Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institution argues in his new book, there are an increasing number of ways in which men are not doing all right. In Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It, Richard shows that men are increasingly struggling as students, workers, and fathers, and he argues that we need to pay attention to these struggles. To discuss the education side of things, I invited Richard onto the podcast. Richard, welcome to the report card. Thank you for having me on, Nat. Looking forward to this. All right. So congratulations on the book. Thank you. Lots of accolades. It is readable, funny at points, which I always like <laughs> in uh, nonfiction. <laughs> but look, let's start out with kind of the question that I think animates a lot of this. Why aren't the differences between boys and girls, men and women sort of front and center of these discussions. And just to kind of tee you off, I'm going to read a few statistics that you cite in in here. The gap between boys and girls in school readiness at age five is bigger than the black-white gap or the poverty gap or the preschool gap in school readiness. Boys are 50% more likely than girls to fail in math, reading, or science. In OECD nations, girls are roughly a year ahead of boys in reading. Finland, always praised for its education system. It's a top performer on international tests. But their boys don't really do any better than boys in the U.S. It keeps going. College degrees. The gender gap today is wider than it was in the 1970s, but it's flipped. Women now are earning more degrees than men by a large margin. In 2020, there was a big decline in college enrollment. It was seven times larger for men than for women. For every black man getting a college degree, there are two black women. And the gap at the postgraduate level, it's even bigger. I mean, these are huge differences, but as far as sort of a policy community, education policy community, by and large, we don't talk about it. Why? Because the change in the story about gender equality in education specifically has just been so rapid. You just quoted the numbers from 1972 for... College and you know, college completion, where there was a fifteen, sorry, a thirteen percentage point gap in favor of men. Now there's a fifteen percentage point gap in favor of women. So it's flipped the other way around. But that's happened pretty quickly, and we have a whole set of institutions, and I would add intuitions, which hear gender inequality and presume that that means inequalities where women and girls are a disadvantage. And to be clear, that's been true for well most of human history, if we're being completely honest about it. And so I do think it's really hard to update your sort of view of the world as quickly as these changes have taken place, particularly as when everyone was fighting on behalf of women and girls in education in the 70s and 80s, the goal was parity. The goal was like, how can we get, how can we close these gaps? Nobody predicted that women and girls would blow right past and we'd have bigger gaps the other way around. Like, you can't find a single scholar that said, wait, wait, what, what if the lines keep going? And, and it is, I mean, when polarities reverse that quickly, I think it's very, very difficult for people to get their head around it. So there's a, an instinctive reaction, I think. But also, as I've just hinted at, there are a whole bunch of institutions, many of which were created in the 1970s, whose mission is to keep banging the drum on behalf of women and girls in education. There is a national coalition for women and girls in education yep. formed in the 70s. There is the Association of American Women, University Women, etc., all doing great work, by the way, but there are obviously no equivalents on the other side. And so we've actually got a set of instincts and and institutions that I think just make it very difficult for us to get our head around what has been really stunningly quick reversal. I I can see some headwinds for the founders of the National Association of Men. That just sounds like a difficult group to start. But what we're looking at is change. In education. In education, yes. But when you see the gaps that you've just identified. So the National Coalition for Women and Girls in Education was formed in the 1970s because of those huge gaps, disfavoring women and girls. So I actually don't think the solution now would be to have a competing National Coalition for Men and Boys in Education. I think it would be better if that coalition actually became one that was about inequality in education. 
and recognize that some of those inequalities are now running the other way. It comes to the asymmetry point that you mentioned with regard to the World Economic Forum. It's also true of the new White House Gender Policy Council, which despite the fact that it renamed itself from the Women and Girls Council, only looks at gender inequality in one direction. And so there is this built-in asymmetry to the conversation about gender inequality. I think if we're being generous to the people that really are worried about this, there is a concern that we're going to take our eye off, off the ball of the remaining tasks that we have facing women and girls. But that's the sort of zero-sum thinking that I really do think we need to get past. We, we can think two thoughts at once. Yeah, and to be sure, we aren't living in some fantasy world where we say, you know, women have on all metrics and in every endeavor surpassed men. I mean, you can just take your pick of places and areas that women still trail behind men, certainly in the boardroom and in other leadership positions like that. So there is uh, ground to be made up for women. It's just that in education, in a number of metrics, you know, it's time to spike the ball in some ways. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. They have, But as I say, it's hard to catch up. But what I, what I like about the fact that the way that this debate works when there are remaining gaps. So let's take college leadership, for example, where it's still 30% of college presidents and CEOs are women. There is a very clear goal. The Council, American Council on Education has said, we're going to try, we're going to hit parity. Uh, we're going to get better. By 2030, we're going to get to parity. Actually, it looks like with the re- number of retirements that are coming up and the number of women in the pipeline, that's an achievable goal. But they've set a goal and they have a whole bunch of colleges that have signed pledges to say that when we, when we actually do pr- appoint a new leader... We're going to try as hard as we can to appoint a woman to that role. So there are intentional, well-organized efforts to try and close those remaining gender gaps, even in education, smaller they are in terms of the number of them. But there are no equivalent initiatives where the gaps run the other way. And so it's really an attempt to rebalance the conversation that I've dived into this subject in the first place. Well, and there's, there's also the question of once you have organized efforts to push in one direction... Uh, what do you do when your when your success is uh, running ahead of parity? And yeah. what do you do? It, uh, Close up shop. I, I, mean, I, I that's, <laughs> yeah. that's that's a tough. Like what call. if America? What if you know? If if America became a, a country that was completely dedicated to the principles of freedom and free enterprise and capitalism, would AI shut itself down? I I, I I'm sure we would just uh, rest on our laurels and uh, I hope so. you know, wind things down. That's what I hope you'd do. I think you'd all just go and, you know, go to an island somewhere and lie on a hammock. Keep checking Twitter every now and again just to check that Enterprise was still free. That's right. I'd podcast from my base. Sure. <laughs> so this isn't just education story, though, no. right? I mean, you have other stats in your book outside of the realm of education. One in four black men born since the late 70s have been in prison by their mid-30s. For women, it's just a shadow of that. Wages for most men are lower than they were in real terms than in 1979. They're up by like 30% for women. I mean, that doesn't mean we've reached parity, but the change over time trend line is clear. starkly different. Suicides and overdoses, two-thirds male. And even recently in COVID, right, we saw Mm. huge uh, gender differences. But to some degree, we didn't talk about these things. And even when you talk about deaths of despair, it's it's almost like the gender portion is something often talked about in passing. I mean, is this a, a broad cultural problem where just whenever it comes to differences by gender, there's one direction that's accepted and the other one is just, you know, not available? Yeah, I think that is a big part of the problem. And I've discovered this in some of my own work. So the drop in college enrollment in 2020, you, you talked about, I remember looking through the NCES data tables and for some other piece of work I was doing. And when I got to appendix table C3 or whatever it was, I was looking at numbers and going, wait, wait, what? Wait, hang on. Got someone else to check it. Sevenfold difference. Wasn't in the summary. Didn't get any attention until we wrote a little bit about it at Brookings. And it has got a bit more attention since. So I do think there's this ingrained, it's habitual to actually not see these uh, gender inequalities. Same with COVID. I did some work on COVID, which does show a much, much higher death rate for men. And actually, COVID is a great example, I think, of this overall cultural problem that you're alluding to. So you see this much higher death rate for men internationally. So the first reaction to people is to say, well, it can't be true. Um, Well, it is true. Okay. Well, that must be because of toxic masculinity. must be because men are refusing to wear a mask and get vaccinated and whatever. That's not true either. The case rates are exactly the same. It must be because men drink and smoke and eat bad food too much. That's pre-existing conditions. No, that turns out not to be true either. It turns out that men are biologically more vulnerable. They said they were to SARS as well. It's something to do with ACE receptors, 
please don't ask me to say any more than that about <laughs> more it. on that please. <laughs> please, if you need another podcast guest for, but like there's just a biological difference there right? there there is men are more vulnerable now is it important to know that? Well, it might be when you're thinking about vaccination protocols. It might be when you're thinking about how you're marketing some of the things you're doing about mask wearing and something like if you know that men, I mean, among middle-aged men, actually, middle-aged men are twice as likely to die as women. That's really where the biggest gender gap is. And so it was a great illustration of, first of all, like, can we talk about this data? Second of all, can we do it in a way that doesn't immediately just presume it's men's fault? Because right? Right. I think a big part of the, this is one of the themes of the book is, one of my frustrations with the way we talk about the issues facing boys and men is the tendency of both sides to individualize the problem is to say there's something wrong there's something wrong with them and so the problem the the problems that boys and men are having are very often seen as a problem with boys and men either toxic masculinity on the left or a lack of sufficient virility and masculinity right so the right is saying you need to man up you know you need to be more like your father and the left is saying you need to get suck all this toxic masculinity out of you you need to be more like your sister but what they share is just is clearly about the individual, not looking at the structure of the education system, which I think is structured to disfavor boys and men, not looking at these shocks in the labor market, free trade, automation, etc., which have decimated ma male jobs, not looking at deep changes in the structure of family life, largely as a result of the su successful rise of women, which we applaud. And so we have to look at the problems that boys are manifesting in a broader and more structural context rather than just immediately going to individualized solutions, especially on the left. It's really the only kind of victim blaming that you're allowed to do now is blaming men. Yeah. I really like in the book how you, you talk about holding two ideas in your head at once mm. on this, because the answer is not, well, now it's time that we build structures to benefit men, right. but it's to say, look, there are structural problems or problems that apply to men that deserve attention and we can still apply attention to areas where women need structural reforms and other aid. You can do both. I have, as I say in the book, we have an education system that's structured to favor girls and women, and we have a labor market that's structured to favor men. Both of those are problems, and both of those are things we should try to fix. Two wrongs do not make a right, which is kind of the, sometimes that's how you feel when you're into these debates. Ah, but what about? And then point to a bunch of inequalities. The other. By the way, both sides do this. And so the problem with the men's rights movement and the way the alt-right sometimes talk about this stuff is that actually as soon as women say, you know, there's a gender pay gap, there are issues around domestic violence, there's still a paucity of women in leadership positions and so on, then the men on the right say, ah, but what about suicide rates? Ah, well, what about life expectancy and so on? So you, yes, all these things are true. Yes. <laughs> but it's like almost one side uses the facts that are for their side to, to sort of, suggest that the facts on the other side aren't true, whereas both are true. I think when it comes to these issues around boys and men, the problem is that because the only people really willing to speak loudly about this tend to be from the men's rights movement, tend to be seen as alt-right and so on, and that others, even if they're having these conversations privately, and by the way, everyone's talking about this privately, don't want to talk about it publicly for fear they'll get lumped in with that other group. And so there's a sort of weird conspiracy of silence around this where people are genuinely afraid to raise these issues for fear of how it will be perceived in general discourse. And I honestly felt as if that was one of the reasons that I should talk about it to create, try and create a little bit more space into which we could have these conversations. And in particular, for those who are perhaps more on the centre-left side of the argument, to, to, to try and clear some ground within which we can actually talk about this without asking everyone to give up their prior commitments, say, to women's rights. Yeah, well, with The Conspiracy of Silence, this book is something stepping into the breach, and I hope you haven't taken too much flag for it. I've taken a bit. Actually, more from the right, to be honest. Oh, good. Right, oh, so. goodness. I'll take it. So something else caught my eye about some of the educational interventions that you talked about mm. in the book. Again, let me just give you a couple of examples so you don't have to run through them. Perry Preschool... ABC Darien, Early Training Project, these are three, you know, just monuments to educational interventions. They had substantial long-term benefits for girls, but in most cases, no significant long-term benefits for boys. Kalamazoo Promise Program, they increased the number of women getting a BA by 45%. Mm, you know, bupkis for men. Stay the course, tripled female associate's degree completion. Nothing really useful for men. How does this play and why... Is it that I, who study education policy for a living, don't have these understandings like sort of at the top line of my thoughts on these pretty well-known, well-regarded mm. interventions? Well, in your case, it can only be because you're not working hard that's enough. That's true. That's because true. Because you lack conscientiousness. <laughs> it's a, a male failing. Um, 
I mean, people don't talk about this. This isn't known. The the Kalamazoo one, which you just mentioned, is the one that that jumped off my desk. Frankly, it's one of those moments where you know it's a rainy Tuesday afternoon. You're, you're looking at evaluation studies. I'm looking at this evaluation study. This is by uh, Marta Wachowski, Tim Bartik, and Brad Hirschbein. And and it, again, it's a wait what? You, you go back and read it again, and you do find completely free college, like all tuition. As part, if you graduate from the Kalamazoo schools, one of the most generous promise programs in the country. So a good test of free college. And even more importantly, really the only one that's been well-evaluated. And so what do we find from this really very generous, well-evaluated one? Well, as you say, actually, an almost 50 percentage point jump in female college completion. That's a massive, massive effect. Zero for men. So I actually went to Kalamazoo and, and talked to some of the guys out there. So I got, okay, this is where you got to, like... I, I got to get past the data. You went and asked them? I went and asked them, yeah. So I got on a plane to Kalamazoo. Very interesting place, by the way. It was very cold when I was there. But um, And talked to some of the guys. And I hope we'll get into some of this because it really did talk about these issues around motivation. What's the script? It's easy to derail men. Interestingly, the difference wasn't as much in enrollment. It was much more in completion. So it was more there was stopping out, dropping out, zigzagging. And so it was this kind of stick-withedness seemed to be the big difference between the boys and the men. And the, they were saying themselves that the women have got more persistence. They're just, they're, they're on it. They're more organized. They're more future oriented. Um, and so, you, you know, I, I actually describe some of what's happening in there um, in the book uh, with the boys kind of in their own words. It, it's important, I think, to note that there are some interventions that do work the other way. You mentioned the pre-K, but there's a Boston uh, pre-K evaluation which shows actually that worked a bit better for boys. Right. But overall, I was really struck by how many of these educational interventions, in some cases training interventions, did have these differential effects by gender and how little commented it was. And then I started speaking to really kind of well-known, like Josh Angris, David Alter, and Melanie Wasserman, and they're like, oh, yeah, everyone knows this. Like, No, they don't. They don't. (laughs) People don't know this. Sometimes it's not even disaggregated by sex. Sometimes if there is a difference, it's, it's controlled away. Sometimes it's buried. But it isn't really confronted. And I just think from the, from honestly, from the point of view of thinking your money's being well spent, we, could, we should know if this isn't working for boys and men. And I think it asks deeper questions as to why. No well, let's really ask the, why. I have a deeper question for you. Okay. Why? Uh, why? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's part of the, the question, like right? I mean, it could be that some of these interventions designs uh, meet the needs of women and don't meet the needs of women. And this sure. could also be flipped on its head on when there are interventions that happen to have better effects for males and not right. so for yes. females. You see this in some charter school literature as well, yes. right? The effects for, for males and certainly minority males right. are just Black much males. larger. But that begs the question, right? Well, why? And mm. also, if that's not really a topic of discussion or at least one that is discouraged by some conspiracy of silence or something like that, then that seems like a poverty, right? It seems like we are missing the boat on ways in which we'd like to help boys and girls with these interventions. So, I mean, I don't know if you can actually answer why to that, but is this a lack of interest? Do you think that some of these interventions are actually just better designed for women, even if they are not intentionally? Not or, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, 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 the best answer is we don't know. And I asked Brad Hirschbein, like, what's going on in Kalamazoo. And that was his answer because he's a real scholar. And, and I think what sometimes what economists mean by that is that we don't know based on the data we have available to us. So that means the question just gets more interesting because I think then it is more into you know, areas of culture. I think at one point in a book, I'd say something like, we don't need economists, we need anthropologists to understand this. I think a lot of these are, are cultural, they're quite deep, they're about the scripts that men are supposed to follow. But just a bit more prosaically, I, it's surf, certainly true. That I think some of them are just designed that way. So you mentioned Stay the Course, which is a really successful mentoring program in a community college. Again, very well evaluated. And to their credit, the evaluators really highlighted this, this difference, right, which many evaluators don't. And it's interesting. It worked really well for, for the women students. It didn't work at all for the men. They noted that all of the mentors were women and speculate that it could be that if you have an intervention where the people delivering the intervention are all of one sex, maybe that's not going to work as well for the other sex. Maybe. Don't know. There could be all kinds of other things going on. And I actually talked to Jim Sullivan, was one of the evaluators, along with Melissa Carney and others. And I talked to him about this. And because I thought, well, you know, what about, you think, is it about family stuff? Uh, is it work? Are the guys going to work? No. And actually, what about families? Like, do these guys suddenly have to go and like become breadwinners? He's like, no, actually, more of the, w- the women are the ones who've got the kids who are having to be the breadwinners. Right. 
And I thought, well, you know, actually, maybe I'm getting this the wrong way around. Maybe if you feel responsible, if you become a parent and you're the mum, then you're darn well going to finish your course because you're going to need to earn a living to look after your kids. Whereas that seemed to be less true of the men, even those that have become fathers, which gets us into the cultural things. So it could be design, but there's something deeper going on here. You asked, what's the deeper question? And I do think it's about motivation and incentives and the script. And so if I can horribly simplify 50 years of cultural history in a, in a few sentences. That's that's why we had you on. Excellent. That's I, I knew that's it's like, he's the guy for us. <laughs> For women, we've had a change of script, right? For women of my mum's generation, the script was, you're going to get married, you're going to have kids, you're going to raise your kids, you're going to have a husband who will be the breadwinner. It's basically the script that, that they followed. Now, there's a new script for women. The script for women is, you get yourself educated, you get ahead, you make sure you're economically independent, you make sure you don't have to get married, that it's a choice. You become economically independent. That's the message that my wife got and that my sister got. So in the generation, we've replaced one script with a new script, but it's still a very strong script. The script that men had, my father's generation, was you're going to have to be a breadwinner, so you might want to get educated because then you'll be able to earn more money to be a better breadwinner. The script for men now is... Meh. Yeah. What is it? So we've torn up the old script, but we haven't replaced it. And so when you talk to these guys in Kalamazoo, as I did, they're just like, well, you know, my friend wanted to... He, wanted, he, had a, he had an idea for an app. That didn't work, and then I switched course. I didn't really like that, and I did that. You get this sense of just a bit zigzaggy, a bit drift. You don't get the sense of the North Star. You don't get the sense there's a bit of a fire underneath them, which is you need to do this because X. You're going to fulfill this role. That's why I think some of these cultural changes that we've seen, particularly in the role of fathers, and so the changes in the economy, I think, are driving some of the lack of, I'm not even sure motivation is the right word, but the sense of just stick with itness, the sense of like, what is it that makes you do stuff you don't want to do? Right, And one is, that's what you have to do. Right? Right. A lot of stuff my dad had to do. He didn't want to do, probably, but that's what you did. Right. And there's something to be said for it. This is where I'll sound very socially conservative for a while. There's something to be said for scripts, for people to follow. And even if you have an amazingly positive change, like the women's movement, if that has the result of tearing up a script for men, then we have a cultural responsibility to think about what the new script should look like. So let me repeat back what I've heard, because I think that this is really an interesting way to capture it. There was a script for men and women that was role-dependent and pretty traditional. Mm -hmm. Women's scripts were changed and sort of forcefully preached. There was a lot of muscle in the culture behind this change. Institutions were behind it. Schools were behind it. Workplaces were behind it. And now, if they are not, they would certainly be punished in the marketplace. And for men, the script was more or less just sort of watered down. Yes. It, it, it was sort of like, well, there's this toxic masculinity thing which you should avoid. And as far as virtuous masculinity, I don't, I'm not quite sure. Diluted is a very good, but Peggy uh, Orenstein has a, she wrote this book, Boys and Sex, and it was obviously more focused on issues around sex. But I think this, this point applies more generally. She asked all of these adolescent boys the same question, what's good about being a boy? And none of them could answer. And a number of them said to her, it's interesting you should ask that. You hear a lot about what's wrong with being a boy. And actually, one of my own kids had this experience. He went to Bethesda Chevy Chase High School, which is a you know, super affluent, super liberal, yep. amazing public high school just outside DC. And he went there, and if you look at the numbers for how boys and girls, it's a high-performing school, but wow. I mean, the girls just in IB and AP and GPA, they're yep. just absolutely smoking the boys. And my son recounted this conversation he was having with some of his female friends. They're walking down the, one of the hallways in the school, and there's all these posters for a women into college night. They were going to have a kind of a, an all women to take the women's colleges were going to come and admissions officers were going to come and only the girls were going to go. And it was and there were all these posts everywhere about just kind of women's educational empowerment and you go girl and stuff. And they were advertising great. the script. Yeah, right? they were advertising yeah. the script. I mean, and, and it, as you say, it's everywhere. And my son was like, um, you do know, actually, that actually girls are really doing a lot better than boys in education now and at college. And it's interesting. We still see all of this. And one of the girls was like, we well, usually don't get it. You, you don't get it. And he's like. I'm trying to get it. What do I understand here? But it really struck me. So here you've got this 17-year-old boy who's surrounded by these messages about you know the need for women to do better and how important it is. And he's like, well, where am I in that picture? And if he's in that picture at all, it's probably as the face of the patriarchy. But he doesn't feel like the face of the patriarchy when all the women around him are flying past to Ivy League colleges. Right. And I think into that gap, a lot of some of the difficult politics that we've seen, there's a lot of young men swinging to the right. There's a lot of anti-feminist feeling right now. 
And I think that's partly because of just that sense of disconnect between the world they're experiencing and some of the rhetoric. And so in just the same way we rewrote the script for women, young women in a way that I completely support, I think it'd be crazy not to, we need to do the same for men. We need a positive script for masculinity. So you're on the record, but I want to talk about all the people that you've talked to off the record. And, and I'll talk about an example of mine from off the record. I talked with a, a friend at a college. They have a scholarship program, and it's sort of, it was set up a long time ago. And it's for a group of students, half of whom are boys, half of whom are supposed to be girls. As It was supposed mm. to be split like this. Hmm. And he said, you know, it's a great opportunity for because they don't need to be anywhere near as good as good. the girls yeah. to sort of, you know, yeah. avail themselves. They're, they're just much more likely to win with, with lower entry scores. And it made me think, wow, this is like affirmative action for men on the sly. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, have you heard echoes of that in reading on this book? This would be something that you, you would get in trouble for if it was sort of public knowledge. But it does this happen to have some parity in some institutions? Yeah. Well, actually, some of it is almost on the record. Uh, so I think it's happening quite a lot. I think it's happening. Let's go right back to that. I think I think it's happening within families, if you can think of it, you know, if that doesn't sound crazy, which is that there's very good evidence that parents are just especially more affluent and educated or investing more in their sons than their daughters. And that's sometimes really critiqued and <laughs> saying it just shows you that patriarchy is still alive and well. I'm like, Having raised three boys, no, it isn't. It's a sign that parents know whose kids need the most help. No. The education system assumes the boys have a prefrontal cortex, which is a bit that makes you get your chemistry homework done rather than play Call of Duty. They don't have a prefrontal cortex, so the parents have to step in. Raising a boy can be described as a decade-long a decade -long, uh, stint as a substitute prefrontal cortex. And so there, is, there are these kind of things going on, I think, in schools and elsewhere. But in, at the college level, it's not that stealthy. Look at private undergraduate colleges and look at their gender, their gender gap, and it's close to parity. Look at the publics, it's 60-40 women to men. And the reason for that is that private undergraduate colleges are allowed to discriminate on the basis of sex in undergraduate admissions. There was a carve-out from Title IX. And the reason that Title IX exempted private undergraduate colleges from, from being able to discriminate on the basis of sex was to protect the single-sex colleges. Otherwise, overnight, you would have made them illegal. And so that was the reason for it. Now it's being used by those colleges to discriminate in favor of men. Everyone knows it. It's absolutely clear. You look at who's getting into those colleges. It is easier to get into a private college if you're a guy than a girl. Everything else equal. No question. The public can't do it. They would, potentially, they could face a really difficult lawsuit. So they sort of have to just take the boys and go, they have to take them as they come. Now they can do summer schools. They can certainly do outreach to men of color. That's a little bit easy to do. Right. But, but they have to be incredibly careful. Otherwise, they could face a very serious Title IX charge. And so in the difference between the gender gaps at the elites and the publics, I think you see pretty good evidence of stealth affirmative action. And the Office of Civil Rights were looking into it at one point, and then the, uh, the investigation was stopped. That is fascinating. Let me ask about what's driving these differences, right? So, no, I don't want to get into any kind of debate about transgenderism. That's not what I'm talking about. But you have a question. How much of this is due to sort of biological sex and how much of this is to do with cultural gender norms that are pushing? Because we've talked about both of them. You talked about the prefrontal yes. cortex or absence thereof. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there are. Uh, biological differences between men and women's development, boys and girls' development. Yes. And there's also huge cultural script differences. Yes. So let's start with young kids entering to elementary school, going through elementary school. How do you handicap which of these two sort of segments is driving differences between boys and girls? Well, I think the first thing to say is that in the whole debate about nature-nurture or whatever labels you want to use, Outside of a sort of very small group of people positioned on both sides of the argument, everybody in the real world knows that it's both. And there's a combination of the two and that they co-evolve in important ways. And so the answer to is it nature or nurture is yes. The question is how much? What's, what are the real drivers here? That's the more interesting question. And when it comes to adults, in terms of like the differences between male and female brains, there's this kind of massive war going on among you know on all sides. I, I find the differences to be... Interesting, but largely inconsequential once you get to, say, after the age of 25, 
there are some differences, but they're not massive. You know, women are a bit more into people, men are a bit more into things, women are a bit more conscientious. Certainly men have greater potential for aggression and risk-taking and so on. But in the general, like, day-to-day life in a 21st century economy, those differences don't really matter. Where the real difference comes is the timing of development. And we can see, this, and there's no controversy about this, which is that girls' brains develop faster than boys' brains in certain ways. And this prefrontal cortex, which leads to non-cognitive skills. It's not really about smarts. It's about turning your homework in. It's about thinking to the future. It's about doing your college essays, etc. So I, you know, one of my kids refused to apply to any colleges that required an essay other than the one that he could just put on his phone through the Common App. Just why, why would I do that? Right. Why, why would I do extra work? Right? All of his female friends were sending 48 million essays. Every night they were writing more essays and more essays. Like, no, I'm just going to do it on my phone. Um, and Anybody that doesn't think there's a difference in the development of those crucial skills between an average 15-year-old boy and a 15-year-old girl hasn't met any 15-year-old boys or 15-year-old girls. It's, it's well known, always been known. What that means is, and the gap appears to be biggest in adolescence. Adolescence is a period which we've really underrated. There's been this, like a early years determinism has almost took, took hold for a while. Adolescence is a massively important period for brain development also turns out to be quite an important period for educational success. And so it's a very important period for brain development. There's a huge gap between a year and two years in terms of how far ahead girls are than boys in that brain development. And those are mission-critical years for the transition to post-secondary, to the labor market, etc. And so quite inadvertently, we've structured the education, in system, education system in a way that advantages girls and women. Now, the obvious question then is, well, why didn't we see that before? How come they weren't doing better before then? And the answer is sexism. We didn't know how much better girls were at school until they started going to college, until we took the brakes off. But having taken the brakes off, what's been exposed, ironically, is the ways in which the education system is structured in favor of girls and women because of this difference, not in the end result of brain development, but in the timing of brain development. And you could cast this argument as, yeah, there were lots of edges that boys enjoyed at school as a class for a long period of time. And when the script sort of got flipped, women's natural advantage came to the fore. And wow, wow, look at them go. Yeah, what happens, the thing is that when you level the playing field, you find out who the best players are. And it turns out that the girls and women are just much better players. But that's not because there's anything wrong with boys. It's just it, it is because of some of these differences in neurological development. At the same time, I think the education system more generally, maybe we'll get into this, has shifted away from some of the more vocational kinds of learning. Where And those are the interventions that do seem to help boys and men, by the way. If you're looking for evaluations of studies, it is more on the vocational side. And the teaching profession has become steadily more female. And so there are many, many schools now where it's literally not a man to be found. And for reasons that it's a little bit unclear to understand... It does seem to matter to boys to have male teachers around. And so there's a whole series of ways in which the education system has become less male-friendly. I think it was always less male-friendly in this developmental way. It's just, as I say, we kind of we dealt with that by crushing women's educational aspirations now that we've, we've reversed it. And I think that's why we've seen this overtaking. Yeah. Like that's, that's why the women didn't just catch up but blew past. Yeah, so a couple of things here, because I want to talk about how female-dominated schools, and particularly public mm-hmm. schools, do. So about a quarter of K-12 teachers are male, right? And that's down from one in three or so, you know, 40 years ago. That's 10%, 11% in elementary school, which, you know, formative years, that's a, you know, that's one to nine. That's a pretty big gap. And it's 3% of pre-K and kindergarten teachers. So all these things are very true the earlier you go, but, but even across the board, women are dominating schools Let me ask you how, you already alluded to this, to some degree, that may advantage girls or disadvantage boys to have fewer male teachers. But let me ask about a different thing that you sort of get near, but I don't know if you hit it so starkly in the book, is whether schooling has been designed unintentionally or intentionally shaped to better suit women, right? I mean, so you've already talked about this. Well, girls are more conscientious. Well, if our schooling is sort of contingent on process to mastery and do your homework mm-hmm. and take all these steps and talk quietly. Please sit in your chair. I have boys and a girl. One of them is distinctly better at sitting in a chair than the other two. I'll let you guess as mm-hmm. to who that is. Yeah, keep it a secret. But there's just questions. And, uh, you know, not too far uh, long ago, we had Alana Horowitz on the program, and she talked about 
uh, devoutly religious students. And she said, you know, they have an advantage in school. And she didn't chalk that up to religion as much as to sort of conscientiousness and sort of a tendency to be obedient. And it sort of goes along these same lines. And I'm not saying that religious students are more feminine. I'm just saying that if we have an education system that rewards particularly some kinds of behaviors that lean towards the more conscientious side, mm-hmm. that our girls are going to have an edge on because of the way their brain has developed, might we have revisions to the way we do schooling, where we allow more rambunctiousness, where we have conversations that are a little bit more of a free-for-all and a little bit more, you know, of an argument than a pleasant discussion. And I'm throwing things out here with a set of stereotypes that yeah. may Keep be going. inappropriate. Keep going. Uh, nonetheless, the question is... It's going to be a great clip for someone. Fantastic. The, the question is, is the general organization of schooling better suited for girls? I think the short answer to that is yes. I don't think there's anybody in the school system that would seriously deny it. The question is why, to what extent, and what should we do about it if so? And some of the things I think you've already mentioned, that we do know that there is, on average, overlapping distributions, right? but but we care about other overlapping distributions, right? Um, the, there are differences in learning styles for boys and girls. There is, a, like, focused attention is very difficult. God, I had this problem myself at school. I mean, no, just the agony of sitting on a plastic chair for hours at a time, doing something intrinsically dull. Like, it was very, very difficult for me. And it, I've seen some of my own sons struggle with it too. I think then the question is, like, like clearly it's not deliberate. Like, no one, there isn't some feminist plot. Yeah, we're, we're saying, ha-ha, let's, let's design it in a way to screw the boys. Like, no one's done that. It's just the way it's come out and the way the system's evolved. And I think that you've hit on some of them, which is, you know, there is this physicality difference. Like, and I say the decline in phys ed and extracurricular sport, I think is particularly bad for boys for that reason. I think more of a focus on you know, narrow education rather than some vocational stuff is important too. But also if you just think about the ways in which we measure success. So high school GPA is a really good measure of all kinds of things. But one of the things we know, it and, and a good predictor of other things, because it gets very close to this conscientiousness thing. I had this experience with, with uh, my son where he was trying to get his high school GPA up so that he could get into a better college, and he was really struggling, even though he was doing better. And I pointed out that's because his freshman year GPA was 1.9. So I patiently explained what the A in GPA stands for. Like this is why this is why you're struggling to get it up, right? Because you kind of torched your freshman year there, didn't you? And, and I remember at the time when he was a freshman trying to like, trying to explain to him, it is going to matter. And if you look at the distribution of uh, GPA scores now, the top ten percent GPA scorers, two thirds of them are girls. Bottom ten percent, two thirds of them are boys, and pretty much a straight line in between the two. So there is a significant skew in favor of girls in GPA. In things like standardized tests. Not much of a gender gap. And girls are completely caught up in math and so on, by the way. Now, that's very important that people understand that. It's like, there's a huge gap in English. But, and so it's not really cognitive skills. It's not that there's much of a difference in smarts. It is these non-cognitive skills. It is conscientiousness, turning in the homework, attending to your GPA, all that stuff which, frankly, can be a bit dull, especially if you, especially if you don't have a prefrontal cortex yet. And so, yeah, in that sense, I think it's clearly structured, on average, to favor girls a bit more than boys. Then you add on top of that the fact that we are seeing this really increasing female domination of the teaching profession. And I think in ways that, as I said, it's a little bit difficult to get into the causal relationships here. But it does seem to me uh, plausible when I look at the evidence that that is affecting boys a bit. Uh, Exactly how much and why. There's some evidence, for example, that female teachers, you probably know this work better than me now, but uh, the female teachers view behavior of boys a bit differently to males. They're a bit more likely to say that's bad behavior, whereas male teachers are a bit more likely to kind of go with it a little bit more. They can identify with it. They can identify with it. They, <laughs> they can remember what it was like to be a boy. Also, actually, male teachers are much more likely to be coaches. So there's a bit of a vicious circle here, like after school sports and stuff. You get a lot of men doing that. And then there are these role model effects, which I think are really hard to prove, uh, although there is some good evidence for uh, race on that. And I think particularly for black teachers, black male teachers being good for black boys. And so... There is The trouble is that all the research on this shows that it's good for girls to have female teachers, especially in non-traditionally female subjects like STEM. There's almost no research the other way around. Right. No one's really trying to prove how important male teachers are. So there's a bit of a lack of evidence on this, but there's no reason on its face not to assume that the, the, it wouldn't be true the other way around too. And Thomas D., I think, has some work suggesting that 
male teachers are particularly helpful to boys in subjects like English, where they're traditionally weak, in the same way that having a female teacher in subjects like math and science seems to help girls more. And that feels plausible to me. And interestingly, of course, English is the least likely subject for men to be teaching of all the subjects. So the, the very subjects where we need the most male teachers are the ones where we have the fewest. I can see that being the case. Let me, let me ask you a little bit briefly about how this may translate to the workplace. So Tyler Cowan is an economist, and he's an economist who called your book perhaps the most important of the year. I did, did you see that? I, don't I know did. If you saw the that. perhaps was annoying. Wasn't <laughs> it? <laughs> it is frustrating. <laughs> I, I think Tyler is a pretty brilliant guy, and he does talk about the feminization of the workplace, and not in like a Me Too sense, mm-hmm. but uh, in sort of the sense that we're talking about now. And it seems that, you know, workplace culture itself could be, in some ways, being shaped by the education system that produces a lot of the workers. So, you know, if school culture is very formative for kids and influences students that spend so long in it, might it be shaping workplaces along the same lines? What do you think? It might, but I'm not convinced that it is or that it has yet. I think that what people sometimes refer to as the feminization of the workplace is better described as the equalization of the workplace. We've had workplaces that have been much more shaped by masculine norms. Again, these are all averages, but been much more male-friendly than female-friendly. And I think that with the rise of women to now make up half the workforce, what we've seen is something much closer to a balance between those different values. And so maybe if you're a man and you're used to a sort of more of a masculine workplace, it might feel like feminization because it's going in that direction. But it feels to me that we're getting close in most cases to something you know, much more balanced and therefore much better. And we want that kind of, I think we want that kind of diversity. It's, a, it's very interesting to me. It's a little bit of a digression, but uh, it might be interesting to, to note that when you look at the studies of like which companies do best, it is the ones that have slightly more gen- gender mix at the top. If you look at the ones where you have female CEOs and female finance, uh, finance officers, those tend to be slightly more stable. They're less likely to go bankrupt, but they're a bit less profitable. Whereas the ones that are led by males are a bit more likely to go bankrupt. But if not, they tend to be more profitable. And so the conclusion of that is very consistent with what we know about differences in profile around risk-taking between men and women. And I think the conclusion of that is that's why you should have both and have the best of both on there. Now, as we've seen this huge gender gap in education opening up in recent years, as that flows into professional workplaces, could we start to see some of, some of it tipping a bit back the other way? I don't know. It's too early to tell. It's only relatively recently that we're seeing parity in things like law and medicine and accountancy. We are at parity now in those. I think we need to wait a little bit longer. And there's also not much sign uh, in those professions. There are some exceptions like pharmacy where women have blown past men. Right? There, there does seem to be there's, there are still barriers to women in the workplace, which are maybe holding some of those professions at closer to gender parity, right. which is not true in education. Yeah, it is interesting. It does seem like that would be industry by industry and job by job or yeah you know it's hard to it's hard to argue that wall, that wall street hasn't wall street hasn't really been feminized, I, I, has it? they don't have a new problem quite yet oh, and legal has law been feminized i don't think so okay richard we have a section called grade it yes where we throw out some questions and you give grades are you game yeah of course all right here we go jordan peterson b b plus b plus why uh, I think he's tapped into an incredibly important question, the very fact that he's he's identified real problems. I think he's a real intellectual struggling with difficult issues. He thinks out loud, which gets him into all kinds of trouble because I means some of what he says is batshit crazy, yeah. along with some of the really good stuff. But I wouldn't give him an A because he he overweights biology. So if the problem on the left is there is no biology, you know, it's all socialization, uh, Jordan has a tendency, and it's partly because of his obsession with lobsters and so on, um, to explain things like occupational segregation as being, oh, well, that's because men's, men's and women's brains are different. So he'd be, he's content with a world where there are almost no women engineers, and he says, well, their brains are different. Whereas I'm like, on average, they're different, but the distributions overlap. And so he is too quick to turn to biological explanations for what I think are structural gender inequalities. But well, that said, I think a lot of people are giving him too, way too low a grade because he's one of the few people out there that's really wrestling with some of these questions. Monarchy. If you'd asked me a few weeks That's ago, right. it's tough, isn't it? I would have said D. Ask me now. I'm going to say C. Okay. Uh, a, a I was strangely I moved that. by 
the Queen's death. And I'm a, a small R Republican, really. Um, but there is something to be said for someone that's not above politics, but beyond politics. And uh, I, I've really come to appreciate that a little bit more than I did. When I was in government in the UK, I used to get annoyed by the fact that every bill had to have royal assent. And the Queen would take it away and spend ages reading the bill before she'd sign it. And you're like, come on, Queenie. Get it done. Everyone knows you're going to sign it, right? It would be a constitutional crisis if you didn't. But she read every bill. She took it seriously. And at the time, I was just like, oh, for God's sake, get on with it. Why have we still got this relic? You know what? Maybe it's the politics of the last few years, but I have a bit, I have a bit more time for it now. Indeed. Ballast seems nice these days. Uh, Bernard Williams. A plus plus. How high can I go? And, and why just, is that? Because Bernard was one of those rare philosophers who could communicate in a way that people understood without damaging uh, the quality of his own work. And he also understood, I think this was a March Sen that came up with this line, which is the great secret in life is to take your work very seriously without making the mistake of thinking you have to take yourself very seriously. And so Bernard was somebody who had a great sort of personality and in the end, someone who wanted to put philosophy to work. And his book, Truth and Truthfulness, the last book he wrote before he died, is incredibly prescient, and I recommend it to everybody. All right. Meritocracy. A minus. The minus being, like, most of the things about meritocracy are good. Best person for the job, meritocratic admissions, etc. And meritocracy has been one of the most important uh, forces for change, particularly for women. Right? The idea that it should be, like, should my boss at the Brookings Institution just be the best person for the job regardless of their gender? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> And, of course, for uh, people of color and so on, too. So it's been this profoundly progressive thought. The reason for the minus is that there is a danger in a meritocracy that the people who are doing really well come to come to overstate their own brilliance and the extent to which, I think we may have talked about this before in the context of my last book, they don't understand that there are some structural advantages that come along with it, too. And so meritocrats can become quite a smug bunch if we're not careful and begin to believe that they deserve their merit, whereas merit is randomly allocated. So good but only up to a point. Country music. Again, if you'd asked me a few months ago, uh, I probably would have said B a few months ago, but now I'm just going to go straight A. Straight A. Country music. Anyone that doesn't think Jason Isbell is a genius is not somebody I really want to talk to. Fair enough. Single sex schools. C minus. Harmless, but not very effective, as far as I can tell. And... Massively inconvenient. Child prodigies. B? That's a boring answer. I mean, why wouldn't... I don't know. Have you got one? For child prodigies? Yeah, I don't have any. I, I mean, think, I've, I've pumped out three kids. I mean, none of them have gotten close. I, I have none. Boys, I love you. You're either. great. <laughs> uh, yeah, as long as, it's, as long as it's not being like manufactured into them. I mean, I, the thing I worry about is... These kids that show the, the the slightest spark of being good at something, and before you know it, their parents are drilling them into it. And I blame, in the U.S., it's particularly bad. I blame the college admissions process. And so I'll be a little bit anecdotal for a bit. When we were raising our kids here, I lived in fear of one of my kids getting good enough at a sport that I'd have to give up my weekends driving them around. Because I saw these parents who'd literally lost their weekends because their kids got onto a travel team. Yeah. And I like, on Saturdays, you know, I like to get coffee, read the paper, hang out, right? I'm quite lazy. Yeah. And I could see these parents, like, we're up at six to drive our kids to Pennsylvania because she's in the lacrosse league or whatever. And so I lived in fear of it. But on the other hand, one of my kids shows real athletic ability. So I was really worried about him getting too good. But I also didn't want him to think I was constraining him. So the trick is get them a coach, but make sure it's a really bad coach. So I found this tennis coach who was really bad. And so I can say to my so son... So you did constrain him, but just not directly. Yeah, I did it stealthily. Very so good. I can say to him, if he says, Dad, you never encouraged me at tennis, I can say, what are you talking about? I just paid for a coach, but I made sure it was a pretty bad coach. And so that kid in question has become good at tennis, but not so good that I lost my Saturday. The effects of AI on the job market for men. B minus. It's hard to know. You know, obviously how the ranking's working there. But the the interesting thing about this is that for now, I think AI is clearly automation generally is affecting more male jobs than female jobs. I think that's relatively clear. AI is going to be an interesting one. And so I'm not quite sure about how to grade this because once AI gets really good, then actually it might start to chip into more female jobs. 
uh, in things like administration. So I can actually see a world where AI does become more threatening to female jobs, but that would be in the in the future. And I, so I don't really have a good answer on that one. All right, last one. 529 savings accounts. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, yeah. You don't have to go on that one. Just don't. Like, I, I sort I, of I knew where you I to it my previous episode. And, <laughs> and All right. So that's it for graded. Thanks for for playing. Let's talk about redshirting. So one of the big arguments in the book and also the piece in the Atlantic that came out, Richard Reeves says we should redshirt boys. So briefly, what's redshirting? Redshirting is a term that refers to holding someone back a year. Actually comes from athletics originally. And one of the things you would do is you'd hold a kid back a year so they were bigger. Uh, and therefore be more competitive in, in athletics, particularly for boys, actually. And there are still, still some schools that do that. So there's athletic redshirting for that reason. And then there's academic redshirting, uh, which essentially is to, is to hold kids back a year so that they'll be more educationally advanced, more cognitively or non-cognitively advanced, and therefore do a bit better in school. It became quite popular after Malcolm Gladwell's book came out, uh, Outliers, because he had this evidence that kids who are relatively old for their year did better actually particularly in things like sport and yeah. so on too and so you it became a little bit of a discussion around then the reason i think that there's a case for boys starting school a year later than girls i.e being redshirted is for the reasons we talked about earlier that just everything else equal boys do develop somewhat more slowly than girls and that really plays out in adolescence but i don't i don't want to hold boys back partway through their educational career i'd rather hold them back at the beginning and interesting, a lot of private schools do do this. I actually, it's not in the Atlantic piece; it's in an accompanying Brookings piece. A, a private, a very prestigious East Coast private school whose name I can't use because they shared the data on the basis of anonymity, but who, pretty much everybody would know if I were to name it. They shared the birth dates of their graduating seniors, and thirty percent of the boys were older than they should be for that year. So at some point along the line, they'd been redshirted. It was like six percent of the girls, and, and this was twelve years ago. Uh, yeah, so, uh, but they could 13. have been held back in middle school. We don't, we don't, we don't know exactly, sure. right? But the reason I did that was because it's kind of an open secret among in private schools, so particularly summer-born boys, are very, very often uh, red-shirted. And so I dug into that, and I think there's a strong case for doing it to essentially level the playing field. One way to think about this is that we, we, we use chronological age as a kind of proxy for developmental age. It's a rough proxy, but we've got to have something, right? right. When should you start school? But there's a big gender difference in the relationship between chronological and developmental age. And so I think the, year, the boys being a year older chronologically would mean that they were closer developmentally, especially in those crucial adolescent years. And so I think a good default would be to, at the very least, encourage or allow boys and perhaps make it a default policy that they do start school a year later. All right. So a couple of questions <laughs> on this. So you redshirt boys automatically in an ideal world so that they have an extra year of growth so they're developmentally closer to uh, women. What would be the optimal amount of time to redshirt? Like, why stop at one year? Because it sounds like, well, at least through much of school, boys are maybe a couple of years behind girls. And if that's the case, is is one year enough? Well, there's some there's some evidence that on some skills it is more than a year on average, but there's a couple of things. One is, of course, these distributions overlap quite significantly. Although, so do the distributions between the different grades. In fact, you know, the the grade the difference between first and second grade that those distributions overlap more than male and female do. And so, there's a lot of boys who you could argue actually wouldn't really benefit from from redshirting. Uh, although many would. And so if you then did two years, you'd just be increasing the number of boys for whom the benefits would be small. And so I think a year is a good compromise. Honestly, a lot of people think a year is quite radical. And it would get us, I think it would get us close. And the other thing to think about is just looking at scores now. So in the average school district in the US, girls are three quarters of a grade level ahead of boys in English. They've matched them in math. They've given you the GPA scores. So just looking at the numbers I see now, it looks to me as if, based on a whole bunch of assumptions that I'm making about the impact of the policy is that it would go a long way to helping close that developmental gap between boys and girls. But I think we should try it, try it at pilot stage first. A couple of school districts I'm talking to right now, be really interesting to try it and then see what the evaluation studies show. So for families who are thinking about this before the, the default gets changed or there's an institutional change, how should they think about the costs about this, right? I mean, if you're going to redshirt your boy, a couple of things. You might have another year of daycare. Yep. You might have another year of feeding them when they're 18 or 19 years old, which is, uh, you know, 
the most expensive time of feeding a boy, I would gauge. Yeah. But, I mean, what do you think the costs are to this? Yeah, well, of course, there's a whole bunch of assumptions here about when we start kids in school generally. Sure. And that varies by state, but also varies a lot internationally. And so someone said this to me the other day as well. Of course, the best way to do your policy is to start girls a year earlier than we currently do. Hmm. Uh, if what you're interested, if you're trying to close a gender gap, then you know, why presume that we've got it right for girls now? Sure. Maybe in the UK, certainly we start earlier. I don't actually think that's probably the right way to go, but I think we have to take those costs seriously. Certainly, it would have to be combined with, I think, more support, particularly for lower-income parents, to provide childcare for their kids. You can imagine a, a pre-K program. Uh, there's an interesting. There's an interesting case study about it. So you write about this stuff, and as you know, sometimes writing about something is how you research it because then a bunch of people write to you and say, oh. And so there's a school Indeed. district just outside Minneapolis, Winnetonka, where they actually introduced a second year of pre-K aimed at particularly younger kids or those who weren't developmentally ready. The problem is all the parents did it. Uh, and so they're now having to kind of row back on that a little bit, but it's really interesting and there are a number of, there are some private schools that have this extra year of pre-K. So what they effectively do is give a double dose of pre-K to a bunch of kids who are mostly boys. So that's another way to think about this is double dose pre-K. Uh, so you could still enroll at about enroll in some kind of education at the same time. It's just that the boys would do two years of it as opposed to the one year for the girls. So th there are various ways it could be designed. And as for the other end, well, look, I think it depends how the boys do at the end of high school. If, if I'm right that this will help the boys, then maybe that they will have fewer boys being held back a grade. You know, non-trivial number of boys get held back a grade, maybe more of them will graduate high school. Only 82% of boys currently graduate high school on time. That's 18% of boys. Nearly one in five boys don't graduate high school on time now. And so, and they're the ones I'm most worried about. And so it might be that if they weren't behind from the beginning, maybe they would be graduating more on time. So it's possible that at least some boys who are currently taking longer to finish high school wouldn't take so long. And so they won't be a year older after all. And of course, girls' graduation rates are markedly higher. Yeah, they're 88%. And that six percentage point gap is similar to the gap, say, between white and Hispanic kids. So let me push back a little bit on this idea. Mm. Just offer some reasons. So one is they're developmentally behind when they enter, but by some measures, they look pretty similar at the end. So if you just look at SAT scores, yeah. right? And you could argue that SAT scores, I, I've heard it argued, SATs are a little bit better than ACTs at gauging sort of problem-solving, pure academic ability. ACT is a little bit more procedural and, and so forth. In other words, ACT, where there's a narrower match. Uh, well, the girls are ahead of boys on ACT. Yeah, yeah. where where girls are ahead. Yeah. It, that may be the conscientiousness bleeding. Through. Right. So let's just yes. uh, suggest. If you look at SAT scores, mm -hmm. there's not a big participation difference, right? No. And when you look at the high scores, at least, you see some differences. On the reading section, you got 8% of the top 100-point scores that are males versus 7% that are females. But on math, it's 12 versus 7%. And when you talk about uh, the full-scale score, uh, between 1,400 and 1,600, that's 9% of males and 6% of females. So, in other words, at least when you're talking about the top there... Yeah. You have some overrepresentation of males. So yeah. even if we did the red shirting, could it be an overcorrection? Maybe it's that boys catch up towards the end. What do you make of that argument? Yeah. So uh, first of all, of course, you're right. The ACT has now gone a bit the other way. There's essentially, essentially almost no gap on average SAT, but you've pointed the distributional differences. There are also more boys at the bottom of the SAT distribution. So there's a males at the tails story here too. But but overall, you're right. By stark contrast to GPA, which skews heavily in favor of girls, there really isn't one in SAT. And so what that tells me is that most of the difference that we're seeing uh, between girls and boys is not so much in those cognitive abilities, which SAT gets at pretty well. It is more in these non-cognitive skills, which lead you to much more GPA. So as I said earlier, I think it's not there's not much evidence that girls are smarter than boys in that cognitive problem-solving way. What they're better at is having their act together. So if we want to you know, get having your acts togetherness, whatever the phrase would be, like girls are just ahead of boys. And so I think that's interesting because what that suggests to me is that, that we should be careful, first of all, about how we're evaluating progress and, and performance. And then it has implications for like, what do these tests do? So I had this interesting exchange with Jonathan Rothwell, you probably know, he used to be at Brookings now at Gallup, where he's like, yeah, but look at the NAEP scores. 
between girls and boys. There's almost no gap in math. There's no gap in science. The girls are way ahead in English. And I said, yeah, but when was the last time that anyone used NAEP scores to admit anybody to anything? Um, and actually, you're seeing a lot of colleges now moving to SAT, moving to test optional or getting rid of them. And so the very, the very one domain where there is something close to gender parity is the one that's becoming less consequential for educational progress. Now, I don't really blame the colleges because as you know better than me, GPA is a better predictor of your performance in college than SAT because it turns out that the sorts of skills that get you a good high school GPA are also the sorts of skills that help you endure, endure I'm sorry, enjoy four years of college. That's right. And so it's a better predictor. Okay, fine. It's, it's still be better to have SAT in there, I think, but it's better if you have both to predict. But I think it just it puts a sharp point on the, the fact that the ways in which boys are developmentally behind are quite specific. And it's specific skills where they lag, but they are skills that are now currently quite highly rewarded in the education system. Back in the UK, when I was doing this stuff, we were much more test oriented. And I'm sure it's one of the reasons why I was able to do quite well in the UK education system, because my grades weren't all that good. And there was a huge push to say, hang on, hang on, this is unfair to the girls. Right. So we moved towards much more of a continuous assessment GPA model in the UK because it did seem to disfavoring girls. So we've got to strike a balance here. So you definitely guessed the, my next argument, which was, of course, SAT doesn't matter as much, especially for predicting who's going to not only enroll in college, but get through college. Right. right. The higher GPA is a better predictor. And that's why a lot of people will say, yes, SAT is a good is maybe a better measure of academic ability or some such narrow thing but we don't want narrow things we want to know what's going to get us through we want people to turn their homework in. but then that raises a second question and that question is that the red shirting may not it, it may get us around the underlying problem but not squarely address the problem so there's a lot of you know troubling shocking numbers in your book right and it's up and down society and we talked about this at the beginning if the script for males is not strong enough to drive them the way women's success has been driving, then it may be that we have a bit more of a cultural problem. So there's a logistical answer to a cultural problem, which seems to me could not fix the challenges that boys are facing. Mm. Now, you are not a your sort of typical culture warrior, but I would say that dream hoarders would be definitely an entry into, huh. uh, you know, let's have a fight about how people interpret culture. My question here is, do we need to strive for the cultural fix to this problem and see, well, you know, redshirting, whether it is or is not a good policy fix, may be a policy fix to a cultural problem? Yeah, well, I... It's a great question. I, I describe myself in, in this book as a conscientious objector to the culture wars. Uh, I certainly think that's true here. And I think this is a, an area that really does need, it needs a you know, cool assessment of what's going on. We need to think, try and figure out what the problem is and how we can solve it. It does not help by polemics on, on either side. And this is very definitely not a polemical book. Dream Hoarders was a more polemical book. It was more of an attack on the, the hypocrisies of the liberal upper middle class. And that was fun. Um, and warranted <laughs> yeah and I agree but, but sort of it was interesting like having done it I didn't sort of feel the need to spend the next two or three years working on it whereas with this book I now have a new project on boys and men at Brookings this is what I want to spend my time on because I think this is quite a deep problem and you're quite right I have this technocratic fix which is oh the boys brains are slower to develop so let's put them in a year later let's see if that has much of an effect but I do think that there are a series of cultural problems here about the script about what it means to be successful about how to how to in some ways achieve the task that every society has had to engage in, which is how to help boys to become mature men. Masculinity is more a strong social construct, and I just think we're failing in that cultural responsibility. And in the particular case of education, what really troubles me is the idea that educational success itself will start to be seen as feminine. It always was a little bit, but under conditions of sexism, that was one thing. But now, and I really worry about this in the context of class, we see these huge gender gaps in working class um, families in particular, where I just don't want it to be seen as, you know, what is that thing about acting white? I talked to Coleman Hughes about this, that that was a big issue for black kids. But you also don't want doing well at school to be seen as somehow acting girly. Right. And if you have an increasingly feminine teaching profession, 
you have a pedagogy in a way of approaching teaching which is a little bit less male friendly and you have some cultural scripts around masculinity which are not that helpful to young boys i think there's a real danger that boys start checking out of education altogether and seeing it as not really for them uh, and i don't think it's happened yet but i i can i am really worried about that trend and culturally i think if we end up entwining ideas of femininity and education then I think that's going to be bad for all of us, including for women. Well, toxic masculinity is like it's an idea. You you say it and people understand what you're talking about. But I was searching for a phrase that would sort of indicate the opposite of it. A virtuous masculinity? That sounds not right. Uh, positive masculinity? Maybe, but it doesn't sell. But it seems to me that the fact that I can't come up with a phrase makes me think that you got plenty of work to do on I have boys one. and mood, I, I, men I have, project. I have one, which is mature masculinity. And I think what some people refer to as toxic is really immature. It's when you know, you've got a lot of the testosterone's there, you're acting out, you're still figuring out what it means, you haven't got it under control yet, you haven't figured out how to be a man. And it's a kind of boorishness that comes along with that. And I'm afraid that it's a, uh, you know, a version of masculinity that's being somewhat celebrated on the right now with, you know, BDE and Donald Trump and so on. And that actually, this just like, it's, it's adolescent masculinity. And there are a bunch of things that 14-year-old boys and 15-year-old boys do that most 14 or 15-year-old boys have always done and always will, which you really don't want them to be doing when they're 24 and 34 and 44. What happens? We grow up. And so I do think that this distinction between mature and immature masculinity is useful. Toxic is not helpful because it gets, it gets close to saying there's something intrinsically wrong with you. It's a bit religious. It's a bit like we, have to, we need an exorcism of some kind. If we could just suck all that toxicity out of you, you'd be great. And very often what we're talking about there are some natural differences that should be understood and moderated but not, not somehow pathologized. And that's the problem with the language of toxic masculinity. Whereas I think saying grow up, stop being so immature, is a much better way to think about it. Richard, the book of Boys and Men, it's great. Available now. Yes. And uh, thanks for coming to the report card to talk Thank about Thank you for it. having me on that. As always, great conversation. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Richard Reeves. We'll include a link to Of Boys and Men and some of Richard's other work in the show notes. You should subscribe to The Report Card, and you can do it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review so other people will find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.